Uh, good afternoon. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, did he just tell you what we just did? You guys know there was railroad tracks just down the road here where, you know, when the big arm comes down and the red lights flash, an indicator that you're supposed to stop and not proceed. Chuck ran that <laughs> to get us here on time. He really did. <laughs> anyway, he's been a great host. I'd like to thank Ed for, uh, for inviting. And anybody happening to listen to the CD between Ed and Chuck, Ed is much more beautiful. Uh, they're going to be wondering, what does that mean, right? <laughs> we'll leave it alone. All right. So anyway, really had a, a good time so far listening to everybody. And uh, oh, I always love listening to Hilary. And I, 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 I've enjoyed everybody. But i got to tell you, because this is probably the 15th time I've heard Hilda. And I still, it's one of those things about the way alcoholics tell their story that I don't care how many times I listen to them, I'm almost laughing before they come up with the punchline, right? And it's like, uh, it's like being on your uh, grandmother's lap and she's telling the same story and you're saying, don't forget this part, don't forget this part. Right? I just absolutely love it when alcoholics tell their story. And that is actually the most important thing I can tell you about myself is that I'm an alcoholic. There is nothing that defines who Carl Morris is more than the fact that I'm an alcoholic. And uh, my whole life, drunk or sober, and my sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. I am 54 years old, so I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous more than half my life. And the reason I bring that up is that no matter whether I was drinking or sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the fact that I'm alcoholic has been the thing that has been the decision maker, it has been the bus driver, it has been the thing that has dominated my life, drunk or sober. And the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. Very simple. It's not complicated. The reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is because I've got a really bizarre relationship with alcohol. And I am not understating the word bizarre. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a, a, a few forms. The first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get when I drink booze is what they refer to as the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more I drink the thirstier I get. It happened with nothing else. An example of that, they're kind enough to get me this bottle of water. And over the next 45 minutes to four hours that I'm talking with you, I will, I will probably drink at least half. I might finish this whole bottle of water. But I can absolutely swear to you that once I finish this bottle of water, I am not going to go get a case of water and lock myself in a motel room. There's absolutely no chance of that happening. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction that I get, if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, ha, ha, no, and just gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I've got this other strange part of my relationship with alcohol, and that happens when I'm not drinking it. Oven by myself, if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, I seem to have this mind that is able to paint a picture that makes it okay to take another drink no matter what the pain, humiliation, and suffering was a day, a week, or a month ago. And it never enters into the equation whether it was my pain and humiliation or your pain and humiliation. I could care less. 
But sooner or later, my mind is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. So I can't drink successfully because of this bizarre physical reaction that I get, but I cannot on my own not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 we call alcoholism. I swear to you, if I could do either one of those two things, either drink successfully or on my own not drink successfully, I would. I would not be hanging out here today. Right? I'd be at home either drinking successfully or not drinking successfully. Right? I'm going to harp on that physical feature a little bit more because it's the one thing, bar none, we all have in common. Because really, our, we, all have, uh, we all come from very, very different backgrounds. If you travel uh, the world in Alcoholics Anonymous, you see that it is a huge, wide cross-section of society. Every single race, creed, color, religion, we're all here. You know, every single background, good family, bad family, education, no education, you know, we're all here. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place where the bank president, the bank teller, and the bank robber are all right here in the same room. <laughs> and they're all telling a very different story about what just happened. Right? So our stories are different based upon our backgrounds, but we also drink differently than each other. We really do. If you listen closely to people's stories, you will, you will see what I'm talking about. We drink differently than each other. We're still alcoholic, but we drink differently than each other. And an example of that, let's say we, to, to prove that point, imagine this. Let's say we right through those doors on the side there. We wheeled in this giant cart uh, that has all the kinds of booze we all like. If you're a top shelf expensive drinker, we got it. Remy Martin, Cavassier, we got it. If you're a bottom shelf drinker, we got that too. Mad Dog 2020. Right, and everything in between. We wheeled that cart right here in the middle of the room, and we all took a good four or five stiff drinks. Real drinks. No umbrellas in there. No little spritzer, mixer. Good four or five stiff drinks. We would all be acting very, very differently. Right? Over in this corner, we would have the good time. crowd. Ah, ha, ha, fun, fun, fun. Talk, talk, talk. Out at the bar. Woo-hoo. Talk, talk. Add a little, add a little methamphetamine. Talk a little factor. Talk, 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 talk. Right? But we're out there having a good time. It's the good time corner. Right? Over in that corner, we'd have the sobbers. Right? They got frames like that. Right? They get loaded and stay at home. Right? Over in this corner, we have the fighters. You know them. Right? Get four or five drinks in. Got to fight. Got to fight. Over here in this corner, a bunch of them would be naked. Right? I personally would be visiting each corner trying to find a few friends to come over here with me. Just the way I am. So our stories are different based upon which corner we're in, too, right? You know, over the good time crowd, they get a lot of DUIs. They get arrested a lot because they're out on the road. Hey, got to go to the next bar, next bar. Hey, 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 after hours, who's picking up the bunkers? We're going to Fred's house, right? They're out there getting, getting arrested a lot. Over in the sobbing corner, they don't get arrested. They don't even leave the damn house. They're just, Wah! right? The worst thing they do is a late-night drunk like dialing. <laughs> or, God forbid, these days, drunk Facebooking. But they're not out there. Over in the fighting corner, their stories are always probation, parole, attorneys, court dates. Right? Over in this corner, a bunch of children show up by surprise. Right? That'll change your life. So our, so our stories are different based upon which corner we're in, too. Right? But no matter which corner we're in, there's one thing. There's one thing we would all be doing. No matter which corner we're in, we would all be back at that cart for another drink. And it was so important for me to understand that when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because when I understand that, 
I can identify with anybody in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I don't understand that, I'm looking for things to separate, and it's easy to find. You know, Hilda and I are very, very different, completely different childhoods, right? Uh, I dated girls like her, actually. It was one of my uh, uh, prerequisites. Mental institutions? Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> How many arrests do you have? Oh, right. <clears throat> So, I set this relationship up that I just described, described to you with alcohol right from the get-go. I, I, I had it. Uh, right from, I did not move into this relationship with alcohol that I just described to you. The second I started drinking, I had it. And I started drinking much later than most people in AA. I was 11. I mean, I, I, it's really true. That is late. I mean, Hilda still had feet in her pajamas when she started, started partying, right? So I'm a late bloomer at 11. We lived in Seattle. A typical morning for me in, in uh, seventh grade would be I'd show up early for school, not for study hard then, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, Loser's Corner. Every school, we've got a Loser's Corner. It's right across the street, you know, about 30 feet off of the school property. We're out there early in the morning smoking cigarettes, trying to look cool. We would also have, if we were lucky, one of what I like to call the playground cocktail. That is a jar full of whatever we could rip off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before. And that jar is pretty scary because none of us have been to bartending school yet. So there's, you know, and plus you're in a hurry. When you're ripping off the parents, you're, you're like, Whoa. and I know you're not sitting there measuring and deciding what goes in there. Whatever goes in there is what gets in there. You can imagine six or seven of us, 11, 12-year-olds, handing that jar around, <coughs> seven in the morning, choking that down. And, of course, it was the early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. And it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented, when it would just be regular glad sandwich bags. As you'd roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it. And go, oh, man. Were you guys there, too? <laughs> yeah. By the time I'm 14 there in Seattle, I'm the neighborhood drunk, I'm the neighborhood pot dealer, I forgot to mention, but my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. He didn't find anything funny about this at all. It was obvious that something was going drastically wrong with his son. Both my mom and him tried everything, but they didn't understand I was alcoholic. They blamed my problems on people, places, and things. They thought if we can get him away from that group of kids he's hanging out with, things would get better. They tried we get them out of that damn public school system. Things get better. They try. But see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, places, and things. See, if you change the people, places, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. So by the time I was about 17 or 18, my parents, uh, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle, and my parents decided that Seattle was a problem. Get them out of Seattle thing, they'll get better. They sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and in that three years, I got almost 10 credits. Um, at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content, about a .25. I did nothing at that school. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish, my mother is Icelandic, therefore I looked like a polar bear. And I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter. 
that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas, and as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year, another impressive year, I'm sure. They're impressive people with impressive lives. Next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year, and that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this, she saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated went from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. They were small at one time. And they love to golf together. They love to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. They were actually being very kind. It's about this same time. Uh, it really would take till past dinner time for me to explain everything involved in what happened next. And so I just like cut to the chase and just summarize it with this. A really bad night happened, so I joined the Navy. Um, it was that bad of a night. What I'm about to tell you should concern you if you care anything about the security of the United States. But on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. That should concern you that at the peak of the Cold War, the United States Navy would have any type of policy, system, or uh, situation where they would allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. However, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp. And I could not pass that particular test. That test is called a urinalysis test, is what it's called. <laughs> and then I knew how to pass those things. <clears throat> and I still remember. I, I knew I was going uh, to. I, I knew that I was going to be in trouble for this. It was obvious. And I was just counting the days in boot camp. And about ten days into boot camp, in came the the MPs and the master arms, and they had this clipboard with the names on it, and there's about six of us that were yanked out of the boot camp barracks and put in this van and taken over from the training side of Great Lakes Naval uh, training station over to the administrative side. And the, the other guys were dropped off at one building. I was taken into a separate building and marched right into the commanding officer's office, the guy who ran the whole Great Lakes Naval Station. And I'm in this big office, and uh, there's pictures of naval vessels on the wall and plush carpeting, this big oak desk, and the guy behind the desk had so much gold on his shoulders it blind you on a bad morning. This, this is the early 80s, 80, 1984 to be exact, uh, and so on this desk he, would, he had this telephone and a speakerphone attachment to it, and he pushed the button on the speakerphone and into the speakerphone he said, Walt, that's my father's name. At this point in 1984, my father would have been both active and reserve in the United States Navy since 1942. So 42 years in, he was one of the highest ranking chaplains in the Pacific Northwest. This was an old World War II buddy of my father's. You can imagine the luck, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, 
and into this speakerphone, he said, Walt, out of consideration for our long-term friendship, I thought I should ask you before I took any action. I'm supposed to kick your son out of the Navy right now. Uh, what do you feel we ought to do with your son? Now, normally, if you would have met my father, a couple of things you would have noticed. Both his body language and his tone of voice told you he loved life. He thought life was a huge privilege. You could sense it from him when you met him. You could sense it by his body language and his voice, that he just really, really enjoyed and valued life. But there was another voice that would come out of that man, and it was weak and destroyed and confused. It was a voice like somebody had just kneed him right below the belt buckle, and I had heard that voice come out of my father many times. And it was always in the last ten years when he was dealing with me. And it was that voice that came through that speakerphone on that, on that desk that morning, and I heard my father's weak and destroyed and confused voice just say, it's just none of my concern anymore. And I can still, as I stand here today, I can still hear this in my ears, the click and the and the man behind the desk let that ring just a little bit longer for the effect, and he stared at me. That man decided to keep me in the Navy anyway, but thank God for your safety, he took away that nuclear status thing. And a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. Um kind of like this. I knew I was in the Navy. It was obvious. All I had to do was survey my surroundings at any given time and see that I'm on a big gray ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in a uniform. You add all three of those up, you are in the Navy. No doubt about it. However, that ship would pull into a port. I would leave that ship and take a drink. And at this point in my life, I'm 23, I'm 24, I'm 25 years old. And what happens to me when I take a drink at this point in my life is I have—I don't know whether it's going to be three hours or three days. I'm going; these three-day drunks are starting that I don't even know how to trigger it or not trigger it. I don't know, but they are happening. And it's a strange feeling coming out of one of those three-day drunks in a foreign country at 6 a.m. or a large pier going. <clears throat> There was a destroyer here the other day. <coughs> Navy frowns on this behavior. I've been in the Navy approximately two years, and I was coming out of another one of those three-day drunks, and I was late getting back to the ship. I'm already in a lot of trouble, and I was doing what I always did at this point. You gain tools for living as a drunk, and one of the tools for living I had picked up is um, after one of these three-day drunks, I need to have a pint off on the side to nurse me back in uh, off the drunk. And so I would always have a half a pint in my car, and I'm, uh, I would drink half of it on my way back to the ship, and I'd keep the other half underneath my seat. At noontime, I'd run back out to my car and drink the other half a pint. It'd be my way of sliding into Tuesday. And this particular morning, as I'm late getting back to the ship, I'm getting that half a pint, trying to get that half a pint in me, and not watching where the car was going. And all of a sudden, my eyes came into focus. And at the front of every naval base, there was a guard shack where a Marine stands duty. And... Uh, uh, my eyes came into focus, and the Marine had his head out of the guard shack like, and I'm wondering what he's so excited about until I look down. I'm going 40 miles an hour. I tried to yank the wheels and swerve, and the car hit this median on the right-hand side and flipped over and bang right through the guard shack, and the Marine did this big dive out of there, quick somersault, back up, weapon drawn. Thank God those guys are in good shape. And, and uh, I was the only one that was slightly injured. The Marine was fine. They were patching me up the hospital for minor injuries, and and the Navy was very angry at me that morning, I remember. 
and they are reading new charges on me as the doctors are patching me up. They're reading new charges, and this is nothing significant in my life. New charges, that's just what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days if you're living the way I'm living. So there's nothing significant about new charges. But the most significant thing that happened that morning is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called antabuse. And I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every morning before quarters. And the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next seven to ten days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this thing we call alcoholism. And that is, I had no alcohol in my system and I was literally going insane. See, what had been happening for a number of years now, people that either loved me or had authority over me were now taking alcohol away from me. And if you take alcohol away from me and you do not give me specifically the center of Alcoholics Anonymous, something happens that I don't know how to describe to other people. I don't have any language to tell a therapist if they're talking to me about it or anybody that loves me or has authority over me. I don't know how to describe what's happening, but man, it's eating me up inside. And I don't know how to say it, nor do I even understand it. But the best way I could have described it, if I could have is, you know, when authorities would be yelling at me about my drinking, I would have said, yes, I understand the price for my drinking is getting high. I'm not happy the car's on fire either. I'm with you on that. But if I could have verbalized it, I would have said, but if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. So I started to count the, the days on that interview, just... been four days <clears throat> I'm on interviews. Now it's been six days and I'm on interviews. Now it's been eight days, six hours, and 15 minutes, and I'm on interviews. And I started to look around that ship. The other men, they're talking behind my back, all 300 of them. Have you ever thought that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, uh, we are talking behind your back. It's not an illusion. We're really doing it. Only with love and tolerance in Indiana, I'm sure. On the 10th day, I just snapped and I went AWOL from my ship. I locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. Uh, this would have been 1980, it would have been right about now, May of 1986. So right about now, 30 years ago, right when you guys were starting your first convention here. I uh, locked myself in this Plaza Hotel, and in 1986, it was $13 a night to be in the Plaza Hotel. I uh, checked about a year and a half ago. I went back and saw it, and they've upgraded the whole area of that, that part of downtown San Diego. It's now $19 a night to be at the Plaza Hotel. It's, it's that kind of hotel. Right, and I remember I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and I, I, on this rickety little end table, I had a bottle of vodka and a shot glass sitting there. And as I stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of antibiotics. They had told me, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of this antibiotics, you're going to get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember looking at the bottle, and I thought, <clears throat> well... Wonder which reaction I'm going to get. I took one shot, and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again, as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure, and I took another shot. 
All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face, so I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room, and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat, and all of a sudden, I was like <laughs> hyperventilating. <laughs> We're doing all right so far. You guys are sick if you think that it's funny. You know that, right? And I took another shot, and up it came. My second sponsor, a man named Eddie Cochran, one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous. He got sober in 1921 when he was 30 years old. He uh, was my sponsor until 1999 when he passed away with 47 years of sobriety. I was doing the math the other day, and this December, had he lived, he'd be celebrating 65 years of sobriety. He called the next thing that happened to me, uh, projectile regurgitation. This is a new level of puking I'm unfamiliar with. Because we all know normal puking, right? You know, you get that little, you're out in the middle of a good drunk, and you get that little sour taste in the back of your throat, right? Maybe a little bit comes up in your mouth, and you go, mm-hmm. And we all know, based upon experience, we have 30 to 60 seconds to find a bathroom if there happens to be one. If we're driving, we really try to get the window down because it's a total buzzkill to, you know, to puke all over the dashboard. It gets into the ventilation system, and it's weeks before it's all right. Right? So you, we... These are tools for living we gain out there, right? But you get the warning, right? Normal drunk, you get the warning. Here on the Andrews, no warning. It was just, instead of this Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe, made to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of antibuse, and that is that if, uh, if you hang in there, and it's an important feature of drinking on top of antibuse, you cannot half measure it. You must hang in there. And with me, if I would hang in there and I'd keep drinking and I'd keep puking and I'd keep drinking and keep puking for about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the antibuse would kick out of my system and I'd and quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating, and sweating. And I'm pretty much right with that. So if there is, I'm not sure whether they use antabuse anymore, but if there is anybody that is new and you're on antabuse, I do want to let you know you can drink on top of it, uh, but I need to give you the instructions first. The instructions are, you need, first of all, like I said earlier, you got to hang in there. You got to hang, you can't quit early. You got to hang in there. And at the very same time, don't die. If you can put those two things together, have at it. So I drank on top of Andrews the last seven months of my drinking. There's no other words to describe this other than desperation drinking. My second, my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in a pool of blood, and I came to on an operating table. And i got to tell you, when you come to, again, more tools for living. You start, when you come to, you start looking around at your surroundings for where am I? Am I in my own room? Am I driving? Am I where am I? Uh, and you look for good or bad signs. And i, and I got to tell you, operating table is a sign of a very bad night. Right? I got to tell you, I was a little frustrated when I first got to Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys were always saying that you'd come out of the, you, you said, I'm so grateful to be sober. I'm now waking up instead of coming to. I know who's in the bed. You would make reference to, you'd, you'd come to and like be, ah, look at who's next to you. And you're, everybody go, ha, ha, ha. Well, you know, the problem with listening to you guys tell that story is apparently you were always the good looking one. Uh, I had been experiencing numerous times in my life where I was coming to look across the bed going, wow, not bad. They would wake up, look at me, go, oh, and run out. See, there's always two sides of that story, you know. 
My last night of drinking, I'm being let out of San Diego jail. I'm in handcuffs. There's lots of people in uniforms that are angry. You know those mornings. My neck muscles aren't working too well, and, you know, people are making decisions about me. And they tried to bring me back to my ship, but the, the officer of deck put his arm up and said, we're not, orders were already processed on this loser. The orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge, or treatment. And as I stood there in handcuffs, I remember going, apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table. And I don't remember thinking, oh, God, you're so good to a bum like me. I, I can't keep going and look at you offered me a solution. I don't remember that. Nor do I remember thinking, and it would have been more likely that I might have just gone, hey, if I just act like I want that treatment thing, maybe I can get out of this one too. But I now know it wouldn't have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience in handcuffs, but my experience in handcuffs throughout my life was always the same. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on this matter? Right? <laughs> when you're in handcuffs, you know what they say. And they took me up to this military treatment center up in the north end of San Diego at the Miramar Naval Air Station. And when the doors were locked behind me, that's when they took the handcuffs off me. And that is a perfect symbol of what the, how the society in which I live and the country I was supposed to be serving felt about how Carl Morris acts out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous. They are willing to take the handcuffs off me when the doors are locked behind me. So I'm in this military treatment center. Apparently we're going to do 45 days. They're informing us where we are and what we're doing over the next couple of days. And 35 men and women from various ships based in commands are showing up. And in the first few days, they are, first of all, giving us general instructions as to what we're in and why we're there. And then they're also doing medical checkups on us. And they're also trying to get our files sent from our ship, our base, or our command over, you know, over to the treatment center so they know what our records are and who we are. And they can start documenting medically in the, in the file. Because in the military, there's this file that follows you wherever you go, big file. In the first couple of days, of the, and after they would do administrative or medical stuff, they would put us into these group therapy sessions, right, and put us in a big circle. And some, some facilitator, this guy I think was new at his job, would try to talk and get people to talk, and he would try to give us information and try to get us to talk, and he was giving information, but we were not talking. None of us. We were arms folded, looking down at the ground, nobody's talking. And he was getting more frustrated as the days ticked by. Somewhere late in the third day, I think, we were in, in there, and he was getting frustrated. Nobody's talking. And this guy named Paco from some other base raised his hand and said, yes, 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 I'd like to say something. And the instructor got really excited. Yes, Paco, what would you like to say? And Paco said, well, I hear that if I'm going to do this staying sober thing, I'm supposed to be rigorously honest. I want you guys to know that Paco is not my real name. Paco is just a name I've always used since I've been a young teenager whenever things look like trouble. And the other day when I got here, this really looked like trouble. But you're going to get my file here in a day or two anyway and find out my real name. But I want to be honest and upfront with you. My real name is Randy. Will you guys call me Randy from now on? And we all go, all right, nice to meet you, Randy. And look back down the floor. But this facilitator got really excited. He said, oh, my God, there's the first breakthrough of any honesty of any of you SOBs. Later that afternoon, they called us back together. And they, they, the, uh, the uh, facilitator got up there, and they called Randy's name out. Randy! And he walked, marched up to the front, and they had made a gold name tag for him. And they slapped it on his chest. And then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's now in charge. And Randy just loved his new job. And we all hated Randy. 
right? He's the guy that's going to turn you in for smoking a cigarette out the bathroom window or, you know, being up at night, doing, you know, whatever. Randy's now the hall monitor. And uh, on the seventh day in this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. At least it was my first meeting. I'd never been to a meeting before. All I know is we've been in this place for seven days. And uh, they over the uh, 1MC, that's like an intercom system through the barracks, there was an announcement made. 6 p.m., civilian clothes, parking lot. And so we're all standing out there in civilian clothes, and about six or seven white vans pull up, and uh, names were read as to which van to get into, and about five or six people were put into each van, and boom, out in town, and each van went to a different meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous somewhere in the San Diego County area. And sure enough, the van I was in showed up at one of your meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we just sat in the back, and we still do it. Uh, When you go to meetings in San Diego, you see the military, we sit right along the back. Uh, back in those days, they, the driver of the van was actually an armed guard. He would have a weapon on his side, and he would just sit outside, leaning up against the post smoking, making sure none of us would run away. I guess that's strong sponsorship, I guess, you know. <laughs> Stay in your seat, son. <laughs> but i got to tell you, I appreciate the people in San Diego so much because they would just carry on with their meeting. And you could tell you guys would be doing this whether we were there or not. You were not putting on a show for us. You were not paid to be there. There was no argument about that. These were big, energetic, fun meetings that you guys were just doing the deal, and we were just sitting there watching. And i got to tell you, I identified in Alcoholics Anonymous instantly. I'm not one of these people that fought and argued, not me, not me, not me. I instantly heard what you guys – it might have been that a number of the meetings that they took us to in the, in the beginning, people were – we're taking their responsibility at the podium seriously about defining alcoholism, talking about how alcoholism affected them and what happened in their life as the turning point and the solution to that. Uh, that may have been it. Maybe I had just been surrendered enough to hear it no matter what. Uh, I guess drinking on top of anabies for seven months is a possibility, uh, can possibly break most excuses for social drinking, I guess. But I was sitting there, and I remember hearing right off the bat, right, one of my very first meetings, a fellow got called on, and he, in one sentence, he described the alcoholic mind better than I have ever heard in the 29 years that I've been with you. He got called on, he walked all the way from the back. He said, my name's Jack. I'm, I'm an alcoholic. My mind would have killed my body a long time ago, except it needed it for transportation. And, and I was and I'm looking around, did you guys hear that? You know, everybody else said, yeah, Jack says that every time. As much as I identified, there was this one thing that really confused me. I don't hear it very often anymore around uh, the country or the world in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I used to hear it back in the 80s. People would say, well, my drug of choice is, and somebody else, well, my drug of choice is. And I'm sitting in the back going, oh, for Christ's sake, was I supposed to be choosing out there? Do they want me to choose now? What are they talking about? So the next morning, I'm back at the treatment center. I asked the counselor who'd been assigned to us. I go, Mary, last night in the meeting, they were talking about something. They called it a drug of choice. What on earth do they mean by that? And she said, Carl, let's play a game. Now, that kind of startled me and worried me because I knew what she meant by let's play a game. She was saying, Carl, pay attention. And it was hard to pay attention, really, and I didn't know why at the time. I now know why it was hard to pay attention. It's because... When I showed up, at, when I uh, arrived at that treatment center, they, they did the medical checkup on me. They found that I had the liver of a 70-year-old man, they told me. It was extended. It was hanging off the side. Uh, my pancreas was shutting down. I had extreme what's called alcoholic edema, where you can push your skin and you can see your fingerprints. You can smell alcohol. Apparently, drinking on top of anabies for seven months does a little number on your internal organs. Who knew? Because uh, it, it runs through your blood system as pure alcohol. 
unprocessed pure alcohol. So uh, they had given me that little cup of pills, right? And that cup of pills is to make you not throw a seizure in the middle of the therapy session. It, it worries everybody. Everybody gets scared. The alarms go off and everybody runs in circles. So they avoid that by giving you this little cup of pills. But if you've ever been on that cup of pills, you know what I'm talking about. Your field, field of vision about like this is just fine. But there's dancing squiggly things over here. And when you turn to see what it is, now it's over here. And now it's, so you're doing a lot of this. So if you're ever at your home group and the white van pulls up, right, and they got out and they've got their little bracelets on their hand when they raise their hand and they're doing a little of this, that's what's going on. So when she said, Carl, let's play a game, I went, okay. And she said, imagine this, Carl. Imagine, we'll figure out what your drug of choice is. Imagine I came to this room, Carl, and I had a tray. And on that tray, I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool immediately, just right out the side of my mouth. <laughs> I started to take them out. And she started to snap her fingers. Settle down, Carl. Settle down. Play the game. You can't have them all. You can only have one. Now, play the game, Carl. Like, uh, okay, uh, I guess if I can only have one, Mary, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, ah, maybe cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? And I go, no. She said, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I take the ounce of cocaine over the other two is, well, I take that ounce of cocaine, I'd get the hell out of this place, and I'd sell two eight balls. I would now have enough money for a quarter pound of tie sticks and a case of Jack Daniels. Now, The only reason I bring that up is to bring up a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous if you're new or fairly new, and that's sobriety dates. First of all, you need one. Sobriety dates are really an important feature around here. If we didn't have sobriety dates, Alcoholics Anonymous would be huge, really huge, right? We wouldn't even be able to see the backs of the rooms. You need a sobriety date, and it needs to be written in stone, and it's the one thing nobody can take away or question, especially us in the middle of the night. And there's only one sobriety date, no matter what you may think your particular drug of choice is. I don't know if you run across this like I do. Not very often, but every once in a while in Southern California, you see somebody going, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? Every once in a while, not often, I get this. Well, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot, pot clean date is May 3rd. Oh, I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was in Walmart all night long. It's like, no, one sobriety date. Funniest thing I ever heard about sobriety date, same scenario. I saw this guy around my home group and said, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night, so now I have 89 days. I know, it took me a second, too. I, had, I almost had to call my sponsor. Really? Is that? I think that kind of falls into the same category as being down in Mexico looking at the tequila going, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? Yes. Yes, sobriety dates are also international. Just a little, little information for the new guy. So anyway, after 45 days, you let us all out of this treatment center, just what the orders were. They, uh, we were going we to get out on a Friday afternoon. And on the Wednesday before that Friday, they gathered all 35 of us up, and they put us in this little room, and we're sitting there kind of looking at each other, and we're sitting in these chairs, and there's a podium much like this at the front of the room, and all of a sudden the side door opens up, and the biggest, meanest counselor in the place came in, and he's a Marine. That day he wore his full-dress uniform. And i got to tell you, a Marine in his full-dress uniform, very impressive, very intimidating sight, and he came in, and you could just hear the way his, his, his uh, heels clicked across that floor with authority, and we all just went, 
in a dead silent room, and he came across, and he leaned up over this punch room, and he stared down at us. And he said, you, 35, have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. This treatment center has been here for many, many years, and over the years, our statistics have shown us that out of you, 35, only one of you will stay continuously sober for, from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, wind up in prison. Nice little exit pep talk, don't you think? <laughs> said many of you relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. You think you thought it was quiet before he said that? You could have heard a pin drop in that room now. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. Because <laughs> I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It's going to be Randy over here, guaranteed. He's like a, the poster boy of the treatment center by now. So on this Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out. Uh, and people are taking or sent back to their ship's base and commands in various different ways. But there was about four or five of us that had been arrested in vehicles the night before we were thrown into this place so that we were told by the command that our vehicles would be brought out of this impound lot they'd been in for the last 45 days and we were to wait on the front doorstep of the treatment center, our vehicles would be brought out to us one at a time. So I'm standing there with four, guys, four other guys, we're looking at each other, and all of a sudden one of the guys points to this car that's coming across the parking lot. He goes, is that, is that Randy in that car? We look a little bit closer. Yep, sure enough. And one of the other guys says, he's drinking already. Sure enough, he had himself a pipe. He's polishing it off. He rolls right in front of us. He rolls right down the window and goes, <laughs> and throws the empty right at our feet. Crash! We look up. He gives us all the finger, and he drives right off. I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. Next thing that I remember of that day is I showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not know where else to go. That's the only thing that I knew where I could be safe. I remember I tried to stop to get some cigarettes, and I got scared, and I was thinking, should I go back to my ship first? No, I still have a couple. It was really bizarre that my orders allowed me like three days before I had to be back at my ship after being in treatment. Bizarre, but it was. And I, I just went to that same meeting hall where I had a, where one, of the, one of the same meeting halls that we had been to uh, while I was in treatment. And I showed up at the 6 o'clock gong show meeting in Pacific Beach in the north end of San Diego. And the truth about my life as I sat there in the back of that meeting is I had 45 days without a drink. I had a lot of information. And I was physically feeling better than I had felt since I'd been a young teenager. But there had been no spiritual awakening, spiritual experience, even a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And what was even more dangerous than that is that I did not know I needed one. I didn't understand what that you could have you could have cornered me on that day and say, do you really understand alcoholism and do you really understand what the solution you need or you will die an alcoholic death? I would have gone, huh? Right? But I knew I identified with you guys and I knew I laughed with you guys. And I'm sitting in the back of that room and one guy that night operating on his primary purpose. I'm sure there are many other men that were operating on their primary purpose that night, but this guy decided to look in the back rows that night. And he came up to me and said, Hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? startled me, and I didn't think quick enough to lie to him, because I swear to you, I would have, if I would have thought for one more second, I would have lied to him, but I accidentally told him the truth. And I said, uh, I don't know, I just got out of the Navy treatment center earlier today, I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bang, big smile went across his face at the break of the meeting, he's like fighting his friends, he's like, he's mine, my newcomer, get away, mine. I didn't know you mark your newcomers around here, for God's sake. But there was something going on in that guy's life that particular night that made him especially glad to meet me that Friday night. That guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. 
Right? So he was wondering what he was going to do with his weekend, homicide, suicide, get loaded, or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy was insane over this woman, flat out insane, in between this barrage of meetings he'd take me to. In between each meeting, throwing the passenger side of his car, he'd start driving and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, I guess. And he'd be yelling at me, you gotta go to meetings, you gotta read the book, you gotta get a sponsor. Damn her! Damn her! gotta read the book, damn her! And I'm like, he's like spitting on me, I'm like, oh man. Now, I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy, that night in his pain, was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am so glad that that guy, that night in his pain, was not at home underneath his covers, Climbing into a sponsor's answer machine. If you're 25 years old or younger, an answer machine is this box that used to sit on the kitchen counter. So glad he was not underneath his covers, whining into a sponsor's answer machine. Where are you, sponsor? Fix me! Give me a board of I'm so glad his sponsor had obviously taught him. Sure, I will be there to try to give you some life answers. But if you learn to work with others, you will have a lifetime of solutions at your fingertips. And by him dragging me around so many meetings that weekend in the same area of town, I learned something really valuable about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new. By going to so many meetings in the same area of town, I saw other people that, that went to multiple meetings over that weekend. Now, I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. But I saw other people that were at two or three meetings that weekend. And what, what I learned about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new, I'm going to correlate it to a football game. Now, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game. And how do they win that game? Or at least try to. Huddle up, they make a plan, and they do one play. Then they huddle up again, they make another plan, and they do one play. That's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the game around here is one day without a drink. You're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. And we go, remember, we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. And we go out there and we try a little of this and we try a little of that. And we run right back in here and we huddle up. And we go, remember, we're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. Just before we break, some kid in the corner go, wait, 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 hang on. I'm sober. Six months I'm sober. But I'm broken. I'm bored. What do I do? Some old timer will get up and say, get a job, son. And we go out there and we try a little of this and we try a little of that. So after that weekend, I get back to my ship and the one other sober guy on my ship was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He became my first sponsor for the next two years until I got out of the Navy. And he was two years younger than me. I was 25 years old. He was 23 years old, but he had 14 months and he was on my ship. And, you know, I could not have asked for a more perfect person as a sponsor, even though he only had 14 months. And he, the thing is, he had a sponsor. He had commitments. He had a home group. He had a fellowship going on in his life, and now he's going to work with somebody. right? And he was on my ship. Kind of gave him a captive audience. I would have had to jump overboard to get away from him, right? My first six months of sobriety were meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, meeting, see a girl, meeting, 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 coffee, 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 meeting, 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 coffee. Oh, seeing girls in AA, oh man, I tell you, was, I'd be at a big speaker meeting and I'd, 
I remember this one time at the old town speaker meeting, I'm sitting in about the 17th row of the do you remember when the old town speaker meeting was actually down at Kearney Villa? Anyway, big BFW hall, like this. It was a, me- a regular Sunday meeting that was about like this, but even more people. And I was sitting about the 17th row, and my sponsor's there, and some of his friends, and I'm sitting there, and there's this girl about five rows, or five chairs down, and as they're reading chapter five, and the first speaker, we're kind of looking at him. At the break, she goes, hi, my name's Chris, I'm an alcoholic. I go, huh, me too, what are the odds? Yeah. And I get all excited. Oh, my God. And I run out, and my sponsor and his friends are out so smoking. I go out and say, Bob, you wouldn't believe it. Met this girl, and God put her in my life. I swear it. God put, God put her there. It must be. I mean, the, what are the odds? An alcoholic in the Navy. And uh, without being asked, you know how some of your sponsor's friends jump into conversations without being asked? One of his friends jumped in and said, God put her in your life, Carl? I go, yeah, I swear. He said, excuse me, Carl, God's not a pimp. Like, oh, oh, bad news. At six months sober, our ship had to stay out at sea for an extended period of time. At this point, we were out for three days, in for four days, out for six days, in for a couple of days. This time, we had to be out for over 30 days without pulling into port. And during the time, my first sponsor and I would be, uh, we'd be out just for a couple of days. You're at duty a lot. We hadn't gotten, and, uh, you know, we'd go to meetings in port wherever we were. This time, we're going to be out for a long time. And so he told me, hey, every night at 6 p.m., you're going to meet me in the battery shop way down at the bottom of the engine room. And uh, I, I showed up that night, and he had that blue book with him. I'm about six months sober. And what was happening, though, is I was running from meeting to meeting to meeting with this sense of anxiety and that thing that I was telling you that I couldn't describe or or couldn't put my finger on that I had no vocabulary for was still, it was eating me alive inside again. Yet I'm at meetings and I would get this temporary feeling. If you said something funny, clever, or insightful, or the speaker was good, I would get this temporary feeling of, okay, I'm all right, I'm all, okay, I'm all right, all right. And then within anywhere from two hours to two days later, no, I'm not. I know I'm not. I'm not all right. And I would run to the next meeting. Literally, there were some days where I used to, I had to push start this car that I got sober in a Volkswagen with a hole in the floorboard. And, and I'd have sweat on the steering wheel as I'm trying to get into the meeting because it just would consume me. It would just consume me. And I didn't understand that I, right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm dying of untreated alcoholism, right? Right there, having fun at the coffee shops, going to the sober dances, going to lots of meetings, going on panels when asked, all that stuff. I'm dying of untreated alcoholism. And I didn't understand. I didn't know it. And so I met my first sponsor, Bob, in this little battery shop in the, in the bottom of the ship in the engine room. And he showed up with that blue book, and he tossed it down on the, on the table. He said, I've been hounding about it for months. Have you read it? And I said something like, yeah, yeah, yeah how it works. We antagonists. Some doctor with some opinion about something. I know there's about, obviously, 20 people at least that didn't understand that joke. That, that means you're not reading the book, by the way. <laughs> and what he did next was just, uh, you know, phase one of him helping my, save my life was that he was there for me and willing to do anything he could for me. Phase two is he started to go through that book. And he didn't really even understand it. It's not like he was a big book scholar at that time or anything. He was just taking direction from his sponsor. As something to do with me while we were out at sea. And he opened up the book and started to read. And when I, he was tired, I would read. And then he would try to share with me what little he knew. Remember, he was only 14 months ahead of me. Tried to share with me what little he knew. And I bet you anything, 
that he blew it a couple of times. You know how when you try to impress a new person, you try to explain who Evie Thatcher is, Roland Hazard, and, and Carl Jung, and Dr. Silkworth? I've been seeing mixed up Roland Hazard and Evie Thatcher. Who cares? Step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message. It does not say perfectly. It does not say we go through any training class. It, it says we try. We try our best. And it, man, the more imperfect we carry the message, I believe, the better it is. And I look back at those days in that little battery shop down at the bottom of that engine room in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on the USS Cushing, Spruance Class Destroyer, DD-985, as Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form. It was the blind leading the blind, two men with a book, trying to save their own lives, trying to have an experience with the book, and they didn't even know what that experience would be. And we had it. We both got it during that time. He died, he died of cancer about six years ago. He was two years younger than me. He was 47. I was 49 when he passed away, and he was still 14 months ahead of me. And i got to tell you one of those, those moments that, uh, that Hilda was talking about that take your breath away in life. I was at his funeral, and this group of men walked up to me with this tattered, beat-up big book. I mean, tattered, the kind that had to have rubber bands and signs tied around it because it would fall apart. And they handed it to me. I go, what's this? And they go, open it up. And I had to untie and bring off a rubber, open it up. It was the book that we were reading on the, on the ship from 25 years before. He had saved it and told them, give this to Carl when he shows up. And it's like, right? it's, it's, it's just one of those things in life that you can't expect it to come. You, you don't know how to describe it afterwards. But, man, it just could have missed it. Could have missed one of those things. So two years sober, I get an honorable discharge out of the Navy. That is a result of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, an apparently merciful God, and a personnelman that lost half my file. That's how that happened. <laughs> and I'm two years sober, and I get out of the Navy, and I was uh, one of the amends that my first sponsor sponsor. He was this old guy, about 54 years old with 27 years of sobriety or something. Right? Exactly what I am now. I remember so vividly right now. He was about my age, and we were 25 and 23, thinking, the old guy's telling us. Right? And he, he, one of the things he had told me uh, on the ninth step, because they were, he, was, he was a real stickler about that ninth step, didn't allow me to use my Navy paycheck for anything except making amends. Literally, I had to assign most of my Navy paycheck in my first two years of sobriety to get me even with society. And I hadn't even gotten there when I was two years sober. One of the amends that I was unable to make while I was still in uh, the Navy was that my parents had paid for that bachelor's degree, remember? They, they had sent checks to a university for three and a half years, and I had nothing. So I had two choices, they, they told me. I had two choices. One is pay them back every single nickel they had wasted on that, or I had to go get what they had paid for in the first place. So that's how I wound up in the town in the Los Angeles area. It's a town called Covina. We affectionately call it the sobriety capital of the world. I know you think Indiana is a sobriety capital world. We think Covina is. The Pacific group thinks they are, but we have a banner that says so. Anyway, I remember puttering on up that freeway with everything I own. It was 1989. I was two years over, 27 years old, and I'm puttering on that little Volkswagen up the L.A. freeway with everything I own. It. And I'm thinking, I need a life. 
I'm two years sober. I really need a life. I've heard people in AA talk about having lives. I, I need to get one of those, and I'm going to be going to school. I'm going to be working. I'm not going to have much chance to go to meetings. I'm okay right now. I'm pretty solid. Uh, you know, i got to get a life. And once I get a life, I'll get more active in AA. But you know what? I need to really buckle down. And I'm one of these guys that it's the truth. You know, if you walk in for a business uh, uh, interview and you got a resume, it's like there's this 12-year gap that the interviewer will say, so, since Cub Scouts to now, what have you been doing? <laughs> and I need to get it together. So I thought, and uh, oh God, I remember even I was puttering on up some nice cars were blazing by as they do on the LA freeway, and they were honking at me because I was only hitting on two cylinders going about 45, and, you know, and, and, and it sounded to me like they were going, the honking sounded like, loser, loser. <laughs> and I pull into the, the meeting hall there in Covina just to find out where the meetings were in case I needed one while I was getting a life. And uh, the man making coffee that day, his na name was Eddie Cochran. I already told you about him. He had a medallion that said 1951 on here. That meant he was 10 years sober when I was born. And he saw me, and he walked right across the room, and he said, he said the very same thing that guy said to me when I was fresh out of bed. He said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? This time I had a much better answer. I said, sir, it's very nice to see your meeting hall here. I'm, I'm two years sober. I'm fresh out of the Navy. I'm going to the university in the area. Uh, you won't see me very often, but I'm going to be very busy. I have to work. I have to go to school. I'm going to be taking 21 units. I need a life. I really need a life. You'll see me. After I get a life, I'll come back. And I'll stop by once in a while if it gets dicey out there. And he said, and Eddie always had this laugh, like, <laughs> and he laughed like that. And I'm like, what? He goes, oh, son, school and work are wonderful things to do. Absolutely wonderful. But that's what we do in between meetings. What he was really giving me is one of the secrets to long-term sobriety comfortably, and what he was really telling me is, son, you need to live in Alcoholics Anonymous and visit the world instead of trying to hash it out there in the world and visiting Alcoholics Anonymous when convenient. And i got to tell you from that day forward, that's the way I've lived my life. I have never left the center of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the first things he told me to do was put new guys in my car, and he, he told me my life would get better. I didn't see how that would happen, but I did it because he was 10 years sober when I was born. And the very first night I took this man's direction, I realized my life had gotten better. The new guys could push start my car for me. My life was better, right? Didn't say how much better, he just said better. I've got to tell you, I have found a life here in Alcoholics Anonymous that I did not even know was available for a guy like me. I had no idea life could be this way i got to tell you that I, along the, the way, I had always suspected that I had, other than this physical and mental relationship I, just, I described to you right from the get-go, that I had this spiritual relationship with alcohol. And I could not have de described that to you until I was 10 years sober. And it was also another one of those life-changing moments in Alcoholics Anonymous that when I realized, oh, that's it. I couldn't have described it. It was the year 2000, so I was 13 years sober in the year 2000. My mother asked, and the only way I can describe it is to tell you the story as to what alcohol really means and why I will go to the gates of insanity or death behind it and why I need to be an alcoholic synonymous. It really explained a lot for me. My mother called me and said, uh, your brother and his wife and kids are in the south of France this summer. Let's go visit them. I'm like, yes, absolutely. She said, we'll stop the night. We'll go to Iceland for a week first. Before we head down there, we'll see the uh, family farm. We'll see this museum that's built for your great aunt. And I'm like, I'm in. And so we went to Iceland, and I had, had a real amazing experience there. I've actually been back to Iceland six times since then, since the year 2000. But uh, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is down in the south of France. So we're staying with my brother and his wife and his kids. They have this amazing, almost like a goodness sakes, this giant chateau of a place they're staying. Remember, Microsoft, 
gross money kind of stuff. No resentment for me, right? And they've got nannies, and, and they're, they're living like kings there for the summer. And it was wonderful. And about the third night, my brother goes, hey, I'm driving, and uh, we're, I'm, I'm, uh, Carl, you're driving, and I'm bopping. We're, I'm going to take everybody out for a 13-course French meal. And I'm like, I'm in, all right. I've never had a 13-course French meal. If you've never had a 13-course French meal, what they do is they bring you a little bit of food 13 times. That's what they do. Tiny little bit of food. 13 times. And with each one of these tiny little bits of food, the waiter or the maitre d' will give you this tiny, embarrassingly small little glass of wine. And they will tell you this story about the vineyard and the family who owned the vineyard and the history behind the family. It's all very interesting. So we're sitting in this, like, castle out in the countryside and on the, on the, on the patio looking at the sunset and string quartet playing. And my brother and his wife, they, they recognize a good drinking opportunity. They're trying two. If they like one, if they don't, they set that down and say, bring us another one. Look, they're giggling and having a good time. Now, me, I'm 13 years sober, so I'm trying all the Diet Cokes of the region. I kept asking for a little story. Can you tell a story about the Diet Coke, please? But my mother, after two of these tiny little bits of out, tiny little drinks, barely a sip, after two of them, she, t- she says to the waiter, no more, she says. And I go, Mom, come on, I'm driving, for God's sake, have a little more. And she goes, no, 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 I don't like the way it makes me feel. Now, I knew this. I've known my mother to drink like a drink and a half every two years. Separated, right? If you add them all up, they come to about a drink and a half. I've, I've just never engaged her too much on it. And this time, for some reason, I decided to start becoming a reporter and asking questions. She said, I don't like the way it makes you feel. And I go, Mom, how does it make you feel? And she said, well, like you had said earlier, Carl, I'm having a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'm looking at the beautiful colors of the French countryside at sunset. The string quartet, oh, it's rattling my bones, Carl. And I'm here talking with three of the people I love the most in the world. And if I were to drink a little bit too much alcohol, the the colors get blurry and dull. The music starts to sound shallow and off in the distance. And I have a hard time keeping a conversation going with you. Do you get that? That is fundamentally the opposite relationship to alcohol than I have. Because what she's saying is, oven by herself, she sees the colors, she hears the music, and she can connect with God's other kids. She adds a little alcohol, it all gets dull, blurry, and sloppy. See, me, oven by myself, I cannot see the colors, I cannot hear the music. And you're goddamn boring. <laughs> I get about four drinks in me and, oh, look at those colors. Oh, do you hear that music? I'll tell you where the cello was made, whether I know or not. And I can make up the name of a German village just like that. I'll steal it from Hilda, Dusseldorf, right? Made right there. And you become very interesting, but not as interesting as me. And I remember I had one of those experiences of, oh, that's why I'll go to the gates of insanity or death, and she won't. That's why she can take it or leave it. But then I, I thought, well, but what about what about my brother's wife? They're, they're drinking hard and they're having a good time, and, and you know. And I go, well, what about you guys? Do you 
do you feel the same way? They go, yeah, 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 we like that sloppy, you know, blurry. We like to escape from our tough lives sometimes. And I go, oh, you're trying to escape. I'm trying to join. So that fund that separates me from the hard drinker. The hard drinker just likes to party, you know, escapes. That's not me. That's not me. Alcohol is my connection to the real world. And that's why I will, on my way down on the Titanic, I will scream, but no! And I'm convinced that's what the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to do. Because for an alcoholic of my type, if I don't learn how to see the colors of life, hear the music of life, and connect with God's other kids without a drink, I will not stay here. And I'm convinced that the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to bring those three things into my life without a drink. Seventeen years sober, I got uh, married. We had two beautiful kids. They're nine years old and 11 years old right now. Now, the marriage did not work out. I know you've never heard of that in Alcoholics Anonymous. But you know what? Well, after about six months in the, in, the, in the breakdown of the marriage and then the figuring out of the divorce, we had to fire our attorneys. They were more problem than they were help. And we had to look eye to eye and have a mediator and decide, how are we going to do this? Because we both love those kids. She loves those kids from the bottom of her heart, and so do I. And we had to figure out how we're going to do this. So we had this house out up on a golf course, and we sold the house, and we split it into two townhouses that are very close, and the kids come back and forth. We don't even have a court order as to when and where they're at. They, they can just be with both of us, and we go back and forth. We do our best to be co-parents in this situation. And so far, for we've been divorced for eight years, we're doing a pretty darn good job. It's not easy. It's not easy. And the more frustrated I'm with, I am with my ex-wife on any given day, my sponsor's direction is I talk really nice about her. She is a wonderful, wonderful woman. She really, we don't get the joke. All right. Anyway, <laughs> teasing, teasing, teasing. But having kids come something open inside of me that I didn't know was there also. And again, this is something I would have missed, and I know that... God does not hold what I'm about ready to talk to to only people that have kids. People get cracked open in different ways. With me, it was having kids. It's like I met who I would die for. I've never felt this way about another human being. Uh, I know that when I joined the Navy and I raised my hand, they made me say I would die for you. I was really hoping it was not going to come to that, really. But with my kids, it's just this instinct that I never knew was in me, that I would die for them. It's like, you know, hey, uh, Chuck had been a great, great host. I love them. In a way, I love them. But if we're out of Starbucks later and some guy comes in wielding a gun saying, when are you got to go? I go, have you met Chuck? Right? <laughs> but if it was my kids, it's like I dived right in front of that without even a thought. It's the most bizarre feeling. And I would never trade my kids for the first drink. But I'm alcoholic. It's really important that I continue to remember what it means to be alcoholic. Although I would never trade my kids for the first drink, I would trade them for the second drink like that. can sum up everything that Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my life with this next, next little story. It will take about 90 seconds, then I'll be done. In about 1998, I had to go out and do what I'm doing right now in Nogales, Arizona. It's back before cell phones and uh, everybody carried a pager. And before I left for Nogales, I called my mother and I said, Mom, if you try to page me, I might not get the page because I'm going to be in an area of the United States that might not work. Uh, there was these big blackout areas. She goes, oh, oh, Nogales, Arizona. Oh, you absolutely, you need to call up Don and Leona. They live right near there. They would love to hear from you. And I go, Carl, I mean, Mom, uh, 
I'm wondering who they are. Oh, that's right. You haven't seen them since you were nine years old. But Don was the best man at your father's my wedding. They're lifelong friends. They would love to hear from you. So I called up Don before I left town. Yeah, before I left L.A. And I said, Don, I'm going to be in Nogales. It's about 25 miles south of you. I'd love to get together for some coffee or something. Hey, he says, Carl, I know you love to golf. Bring your golf clubs. And I'm like, have a seat. That's true. I'm like a golf whore. I'll golf with anybody at any time for any reason. But, I mean, how does he know that? I haven't seen him since I was nine. But I go, okay. And I brought my clubs, and I met him at his, at his country club. On Saturday morning, I left the conference, drove up to where his country club was, and we started walking along. And as we walked along playing golf, he started to ask me very specific, pertinent questions about my life. He knew what school I had graduated from, uh, what degree I had, what companies I'd been with, these recovery I was involved. He just knew all about my life. His questions proved it. He, he was very targeted in his questions. I had, I had to try to squeeze in a couple of questions here and there, why he had uh, left Duluth, Minnesota, and down to Arizona now. But I was, by the fourth hole and all these questions, I stopped and I go, Don, I'm really confused. How on earth? Do you know, I haven't seen, seen, seen you since I was nine. How do you know all this about my life? He goes, oh, that's easy, Carl. Easy, easy, easy. First reason is before your father passed away two years ago, you couldn't shut him up. He would go on and on. It was kind of irritating sometimes, Carl. But he would go on and on about what you're doing in your life. Now, that was nice to hear, but it wasn't news to me. I'd taken your direction in trying to make amends to my father, and it wasn't just sorry. It was that I had to stop with the young man's stance of, you don't understand me, and I had to drop that shield and try to understand him, and we became really good friends. But it was nice to hear it wasn't news. But the next thing he said, I couldn't even swing a golf club after he goes, besides, every Christmas, your mother writes that letter. And I'm like, yes, I finally got in that damn thing. Thank you. Have a good day.